Ingersoll's Lecture on Skulls, Part 2 of 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Now if men have been slaves, if they have crawled in the dust before one another, what shall I say of women? They have been the slaves of men. It took thousands of ages to bring women from abject slavery up to the divine height of marriage. I believe in marriage. If there is any heaven upon earth, it is in the family by the fireside, and the family is a unit of government. Without the family relation that is tender, pure, and true, civilization is impossible. Ladies, the ornaments you wear upon your persons tonight are but the souvenirs of your mother's bondage. The chains around your neck and the bracelets clasped upon your white arms by the thrilled hand of love have been changed by the wand of civilization from iron to shining, glittering gold. Nearly every civilization in this world accounts for the devilment in it by the crimes of woman. They say woman brought all the trouble into the world. I don't care if she did. I would rather live in a world full of trouble with the woman I love than to live in heaven with nobody but men. I read in a book an account of the creation of the world. The book I have taken pains to say was not written by any god. And why do I say so? Because I can write a far better book myself. Because it is full of barbarism. Several ministers in this city have undertaken to answer me, notably those who don't believe the Bible themselves. I want to ask these men one thing. I want them to be fair. Every minister in the city of Chicago that answers me, and those who have answered me had better answer me again, I want them to say, and without any sort of evasion, without resorting to any pious tricks, I want them to say whether they believe that the eternal God of this universe ever upheld the crime of polygamy. Say it square and fair. Don't begin to talk about that being a peculiar time, and that God was easy on the prejudices of those old fellows. I want them to answer that question, and to answer it squarely, which they haven't done. Did this God, which you pretend to worship, ever sanction the institution of human slavery? Now answer fair. Don't slide it around. Don't begin and answer what a bad man I am, nor what a good man Moses was. Stick to the text. Do you believe in a God that allowed a man to be sold from his children? Do you worship such an infinite monster? And if you do... Tell your congregation whether you are not ashamed to admit it. Let every minister who answers me again tell whether he believes God commanded his general to kill the little dimpled babe in the cradle. Let him answer it. Don't say that those were very bad times. Tell whether he did it or not, and then your people will know whether to hate that God or not. Be honest. Tell them whether that god in war captured young maidens and turned them over to the soldiers, 
and then asked the wives and sweet girls of your congregation to get down on their knees and worship the infinite fiend that did that thing and sir it is your god i am talking about and if that is what god did please tell your congregation what under the same circumstances the devil would have done don't tell your people that is a poem don't tell your people that is pictorial that won't do tell your people whether it is true or false that is what i want you to do in this book i read about god's making the world and one man that is all he intended to make the making of woman was a second thought though i am willing to admit that as a rule second thoughts are best this god made a man and put him in a public park in a little while he noticed that the man got lonesome then he found he had made a mistake and that he would have to make somebody to keep him company but having used up all the nothing he originally used in making the world and one man he had to take a part of a man to start a woman with so he causes sleep to fall on this man now understand me i do not say this story is true after the sleep had fallen on this man the supreme being took a rib or as the french would call it a cutlet out of him and from that he made a woman and i am willing to swear taking into account the amount and quality of the raw material used this was the most magnificent job ever accomplished in this world well after he got the woman done she was brought to the man not to see how she liked him but to see how he liked her he liked her and they started housekeeping and they were told of certain things they might do and of one thing they could not do and of course they did it i would have done it in fifteen minutes i know it there wouldn't have been an apple on that tree half an hour from date and the limbs would have been full of clubs and then they were turned out of the park and extra policemen were put on to keep them from getting back and then the trouble commenced and we have been at it ever since nearly all the religions of this world account for the existence of evil by such a story as that well i read in another book what appeared to be an account of the same transaction it was written about four thousand years before the other all commentators agree that the one that was written last was the original and the one that was written first was copied from the one that was written last but i would advise you all not to allow your creed to be disturbed by a little matter of four or five thousand years it is a great deal better to be mistaken in dates than to go to the devil in this other account the supreme brahma made up his mind to make the world and a man and woman he made the world and he made the man and then the woman and put them on the island of ceylon according to the account it was the most beautiful island of which man can conceive such birds such songs such flowers and such verdure and the branches of the trees were so arranged that when the wind swept through them every tree was a thousand acolian harps brahma when he put them there said let them have a period of courtship for it is my desire and will that true love should forever precede marriage 
when i read that it was so much more beautiful and lofty than the other that i said to myself if either one of these stories ever turns out to be true i hope it will be this one then they had their courtship with the nightingale singing and the stars shining and the flowers blooming and they fell in love imagine that courtship no prospective fathers or mothers-in-law no prying and gossiping neighbors nobody to say young man how do you expect to support her nothing of that kind nothing but the nightingale singing its song of joy and pain as though the thorn already touched its heart they were married by the supreme brahma and he said to them remain here you must never leave this island well after a little while the man his name was adami and the woman's name was heva said to heva i believe i'll look about a little he wanted to go west he went to the western extremity of the island where there was a little narrow neck of land connecting it with the mainland and the devil who was always playing pranks with us produced a mirage and when he looked over to the mainland such hills and vales such dells and dales such mountains crowned with snow such cataracts clad in bows of glory did he see there that he went back and told heva the country over there is a thousand times better than this let us migrate she like every other woman that ever lived said let well enough alone we have all we want let us stay here but he said no let us go so she followed him and when they came to this narrow neck of land he took her on his back like a gentleman and carried her over but the moment they got over they heard a crash and looking back discovered that this narrow neck of land had fallen into the sea the mirage had disappeared and there was naught but rocks and sand and the supreme brahma cursed them both to the lowest hell then it was that the man spoke and i have liked him ever since for it curse me but curse not her it was not her fault it was mine that's the kind of man to start a world with the supreme brahma said i will save her but not thee and she spoke out of her fullness of love out of a heart in which there was love enough to make all her daughters rich in holy affection and said if thou wilt not spare him spare neither me i do not wish to live without him i love him then the supreme brahma said and i have liked him ever since i read it i will spare you both and watch over you and your children forever honor bright is that not the better and grander story and in that same book i find this man is strength woman is beauty man is courage woman is love when the one man loves the one woman and the one woman loves the one man the very angels leave heaven and come and sit in that house and sing for joy in the same book this blessed is that man and beloved of all the gods who is afraid of no man and of whom no man is afraid magnificent character a missionary certainly ought to talk to that man 
and I find this, never will I accept private, individual salvation, but rather will I stay and work, strive and suffer, until every soul from every star has been brought home to God. Compare that with the Christian that expects to go to heaven while the world is rolling over Niagara to an eternal and unending hell. So I say that religion lays all the crime and troubles of this world at the beautiful feet of woman. And then the church has the impudence to say that it has exalted women. I believe that marriage is a perfect partnership, that woman has every right that man has, and one more, the right to be protected. Above all men in the world, I hate a stingy man, a man that will make his wife beg for money. What did you do with that dollar I gave you last week? And what are you going to do with this? It is vile. No gentleman will ever be satisfied with the love of a beggar and a slave. No gentleman will ever be satisfied except with the love of an equal. What kind of children does a man expect to have with a beggar for their mother? A man cannot be so poor but that he can be generous. And if you only have one dollar in the world and you have got to spend it, spend it like a lord, spend it as though it were a dry leaf, and you the owner of unbounded forests, spend it as though you had a wilderness of your own. That's the way to spend it. I had rather be a beggar and spend my last dollar like a king than be a king and spend my money like a beggar. If it has got to go, let it go. And this is my advice to the poor, for you can never be so poor that whatever you do, you can't do in a grand and manly way. I hate a cross man. What right has a man to assassinate the joy of life? When you go home, you ought to go like a ray of light, so that it will even in the night burst out of the doors and windows and illuminate the darkness. Some men think their mighty brains have been in a turmoil. They have been thinking about who will be aldermen from the Fifth Ward. They have been thinking about politics. Great and mighty questions have been engaging their minds. They have bought calico at five cents or six, and want to sell it for seven. Think of the intellectual strain that must have been upon that man, and when he gets home, everybody else in the house must look out for his comfort. A woman who has only taken care of five or six children, and one or two of them sick, has been nursing them and singing to them, and trying to make one yard of cloth do the work of two. She, of course, is fresh and fine and ready to wait upon this gentleman, the head of the family, the boss. I was reading the other day of an apparatus invented for the ejecting of gentlemen who subsist upon free lunches. It is so arranged that when the fellow gets both hands into the victuals, a large hand descends upon him, jams his hat over his eyes, he is seized, turned toward the door, and just in the nick of time an immense boot comes from the other side, kicks him in italics, sends him out over the sidewalk, and lands him rolling in the gutter. I never hear of such a man, a boss, that I don't feel as though that machine ought to be brought into requisition for his benefit.
love is the only thing that will pay ten percent of interest on the outlay love is the only thing in which the height of extravagance is the last degree of economy it is the only thing i tell you joy is wealth love is the legal tender of the soul and you need not be rich to be happy we have all been raised on success in this country always been talked with about being successful and have never thought ourselves very rich unless we were the possessors of some magnificent mansion and unless our names have been between the putrid lips of rumor we could not be happy every little boy is striving to be this and be that i tell you the happy man is the successful man the man that has won the love of one good woman is a successful man the man that has been the emperor of one good heart and that heart embraced all his has been a success if another has been the emperor of the round world and has never loved and been loved his life is a failure it won't do let us teach our children the other way that the happy man is the successful man and he who is a happy man is the one who always tries to make someone else happy the man who marries a woman to make her happy that marries her as much for her own sake as for his own not the man that thinks his wife is his property who thinks that the title to her belongs to him that the woman is the property of the man wretches who get mad at their wives and then shoot them down in the street because they think the woman is their property i tell you it is not necessary to be rich and great and powerful to be happy a little while ago i stood by the grave of the old napoleon a magnificent tomb of gilt and gold fit almost for a dead deity and gazed upon the sarcophagus of black egyptian marble where rest at last the ashes of the restless man i leaned over the balustrade and thought about the career of the greatest soldier of the modern world i saw him walk upon the banks of the seine contemplating suicide i saw him at toulon i saw him putting down the mob in the streets of paris i saw him at the head of the army of italy i saw him crossing the bridge of lodi with the tricolor in his hand i saw him in egypt in the shadows of the pyramids i saw him conquer the alps and mingle the eagles of france with the eagles of the crags I saw him at Maringo, at Ulm, and Austerlitz. I saw him in Russia, where the infantry of the snow and the cavalry of the wild blast scattered his legions like winter's withered leaves. I saw him at Leipzig, in defeat and disaster, driven by a million bayonets back upon Paris, clutched like a wild beast, banished to Elba i saw him escape and retake an empire by the force of his genius i saw him upon the frightful field of waterloo where chance and fate combined to wreck the fortunes of their former king and i saw him at st helena 
with his hands crossed behind him, gazing out upon the sad and solemn sea. I thought of the orphans and widows he had made, of the tears that had been shed for his glory, and of the only woman who ever loved him, pushed from his heart by the cold hand of ambition. And I said I would rather have been a French peasant and worn wooden shoes. I would rather have lived in a hut with a vine growing over the door, and the grapes growing purple in the kisses of the autumn sun. I would rather have been that poor peasant with my loving wife by my side, knitting as the day died out of the sky, with my children upon my knees and their arms about me. I would rather have been that man, and gone down to the tongueless silence of the dreamless dust, than to have been that imperial impersonation of force and murder known as Napoleon the Great. It is not necessary to be rich in order to be happy. It is only necessary to be in love. Thousands of men go to college and get a certificate that they have an education, and that certificate is in Latin, and they stop studying, and in two years to save their life they couldn't read the certificate they got. It is mostly so in marrying. They stop courting when they get married. They think we have won her, and that is enough. Ah, the difference before and after. How well they look, how bright their eyes, how light their steps, and how full they were of generosity and laughter. I tell you, a man should consider himself in good luck if a woman loves him when he is doing his level best. Good luck! Good luck! And another thing that is a cause of much trouble is that people don't count fairly. They do what they call putting their best foot forward. That means lying a little. I say, put your worst foot forward. If you have got any faults, admit them. If you drink, say so, and quit it. If you chew and smoke and swear, say so. If some of your kindred are not very good people, say so. If you have had two or three that died on the gallows, or that ought to have died there, say so. Tell all your faults, and if after she knows your faults, she says she will have you, you have got the dead wood on that woman forever. I claim that there should be perfect equality in the home, and I cannot think of anything nearer heaven than a home where there is true republicanism and true democracy at the fireside. All are equal. And then, do you know, I like to think that love is eternal, that if you really love the woman for her sake, you will love her no matter what she may do that if she really loves you for your sake, the same, that love does not look at alterations, through the wrinkles of time, through the mask of years. If you really love her, you will always see the face you loved and won. And I like to think of it. If a man loves a woman, she does not ever grow old to him. And the woman who really loves a man does not see that he is growing older. He is not decrepit to her. He is not tremulous. He is not old. He is not bowed. 
she always sees the same gallant fellow that won her hand and heart i like to think of it in that way and as shakespeare says let time reach with his sickle as far as ever he can although he can reach ruddy cheeks and ripe lips and flashing eyes he cannot quite reach love i like to think of it we will go down the hill of life together and enter the shadow one with the other and as we go down we may hear the ripple of the laughter of our grandchildren and the birds and spring and youth and love will sing once more upon the leafless branches of the tree of age i love to think of it in that way absolute equals happy happy and free all our own but some people say would you allow a woman to vote yes if she wants to that is her business not mine if a woman wants to vote i am too much of a gentleman to say she shall not but they say woman has not sense enough to vote it don't take much but it seems to me there are some questions as for instance the question of peace or war that a woman should be allowed to vote upon a woman that has sons to be offered on the altar of that moloch it seems to me that such a woman should have as much right to vote upon the question of peace and war as some thrice besotted sot that reels to the ballot box and deposits his vote for war but if women have been slaves what shall we say of the little children born in the sub-cellars children of poverty children of crime children of wealth children that are afraid when they hear their names pronounced by the lips of their mother children that cower in fear when they hear the footsteps of their brutal father the flotsam and jetsam upon the rude sea of life my heart goes out to them one and all children have all the rights that we have and one more and that is to be protected treat your children in that way suppose your child tells a lie don't pretend that the whole world is going into bankruptcy don't pretend that that is the first lie ever told tell them like an honest man that you have told hundreds of lies yourself and tell the dear little darling that it is not the best way that it soils the soul think of the man that deals in stocks whipping his children for putting false rumors afloat think of an orthodox minister whipping his own flesh and blood for not telling all it thinks think of that think of a lawyer for beating his child for avoiding the truth when the old man makes about half his living that way a lie is born of weakness on one side and tyranny on the other that is what it is think of a great big man coming at a little bit of a child with a club in his hand what is the little darling to do lie of course i think that mother nature put that ingenuity into the mind of the child when attacked by a parent to throw up a little breastwork in the shape of a lie to defend itself when a great general wins a battle by what they call strategy we build monuments to him what is strategy lies suppose a man as much larger than we are as we are larger than a child five years of age should come at us with a liberty pole in his hand and in tones of thunder want to know who broke that plate 
there isn't one of us not excepting myself that wouldn't swear that we had never seen that plate in our lives or that it was cracked when we got it another good way to make children tell the truth is to tell it yourself keep your word with your child the same as you would with your banker if you tell a child you will do anything either do it or give the child the reason why truth is born of confidence it comes from the lips of love and liberty i was over in michigan the other day there was a boy over there at grand rapids about five or six years old a nice smart boy as you will see from the remark he made what you might call a nineteenth-century boy. His father and mother had promised to take him out riding. They had promised to take him out riding for about three weeks, and they would slip off and go without him. Well, after a while, that got kind of played out with the little boy, and the day before I was there they played the trick on him again. They went out and got the carriage and went away, and as they rode away from the front of the house, he happened to be standing there with his nurse, and he saw them. The whole thing flashed on him in a moment. He took in the situation, and turned to his nurse and said, pointing to his father and mother, There go the two damnest liars in the state of Michigan. When you go home, fill the house with joy, so that the light of it will stream out the windows and doors, and illuminate even the darkness. It is just as easy that way as any in the world. I want to tell you tonight that you cannot get the robe of hypocrisy on you so thick that the sharp eye of childhood will not see through every veil. And if you pretend to your children that you are the best man that ever lived, the bravest man that ever lived, they will find you out every time. They will not have the same opinion of father when they grow up that they used to have. They will have to be in mighty bad luck if they ever do meaner things than you have done. When your child confesses to you that it has committed a fault, take that child in your arms and let it feel your heart beat against its heart, and raise your children in the sunlight of love, and they will be sunbeams to you along the pathway of life. Abolish the club and the whip from the house, because if the civilized use a whip, the ignorant and the brutal will use a club, and they will use it because you use the whip. Every little while some door is thrown open in some orphan asylum, and there we see the bleeding back of a child whipped beneath the roof that was raised by love. It is infamous, and a man that can't raise a child without the whip ought not to have a child. If there is one of you here that ever expect to whip your child again, let me ask you something. Have your photograph taken at the time, and let it show your face red with vulgar anger, and the face of the little one with eyes swimming in tears, and the little chin dimpled with fear, looking like a piece of water struck by a sudden cold wind. If that little child should die... I cannot think of a sweeter way to spend an autumn afternoon than to take that photograph, and go to the cemetery when the maples are clad in tender gold, and when little scarlet runners are coming from the sad heart of the earth, and sit down upon that mound, and look upon that photograph, and think of the flesh, now dust, that you beat. 
Just think of it. I could not bear to die in the arms of a child that I had whipped. I could not bear to feel upon my lips, when they were withered beneath the touch of death, the kiss of one that I had struck. Some Christians act as though they really thought that when Christ said, Suffer little children to come unto me, he had a rawhide under his coat. They act as though they really thought that he made that remark simply to get the children within striking distance. I have known Christians to turn their children from their doors, especially a daughter, and then get down on their knees and pray to God to watch over them and help them. I will never ask God to help my children unless I am doing my level best in that same wretched line. I will tell you what I say to my girls. Go where you will, do what crime you may, fall to what depth of degradation you may. In all the storms and winds and earthquakes of life, no matter what you do, you never can commit any crime that will shut my door, my arms, or my heart to you. As long as I live, you have one sincere friend. Call me an atheist. Call me an infidel, because I hate the God of the Jew, which I do. I intend so to live, that when I die, my children can come to my grave and truthfully say, He who sleeps here never gave us one moment of pain. When I was a boy, there was one day in each week, too good for a child to be happy in. In these good old times, Sunday commenced when the sun went down on Saturday night, and closed when the sun went down on Sunday night. We commenced Saturday to get a good ready. And when the sun went down Saturday night, there was a gloom deeper than midnight that fell upon the house. You could not crack hickory nuts then, and if you were caught chewing gum, it was only another evidence of the total depravity of the human heart. Well, after a while we got to bed sadly and sorrowfully, after having heard heaven thanked that we were not all in hell. And I sometimes used to wonder how the mercy of God lasted as long as it did, because I recollected that on several occasions I had not been at school when I was supposed to be there. Why I was not burned to a crisp was a mystery to me. The next morning we got ready for church, all solemn, and when we got there the minister was up in the pulpit about twenty feet high, and he commenced at Genesis about the fall of man, and he went on to about twenty-thirdly. Then he struck the second application, and when he struck the application I knew he was about halfway through. And then he went on to show the scheme of how the Lord was satisfied by punishing the wrong man. Nobody but a god would have thought of that ingenious way. Well, when he got through that, then came the catechism, the chief end of man. Then my turn came, and we sat along on a little bench, where our feet came within about fifteen inches of the floor, and the dear old minister used to ask us, "'Boys, do you know that you ought to be in hell?' And we answered up as cheerfully as could be expected under the circumstances, "'Yes, sir.' "'Well, boys, do you know that you would go to hell if you died in your sins?' And we said, "'Yes, sir.' And then came the great test. Boys, I can't get the tone, you know, and you know that is how the preachers get the bronchitis. 
You never heard of an auctioneer getting the bronchitis, nor the second mate on a steamboat, never. What gives it to the minister is talking solemnly when they don't feel that way, and it has the same influence upon the organs of speech that it would have upon the cords of the calves of your legs to walk on your tiptoes, and so I call bronchitis parsonitis, and if the ministers would all tell exactly what they think, they would all get well but keeping back a part of the truth is what gives them bronchitis. Well, the old man, the dear old minister, used to try and show us how long we would be in hell if we would only locate there. But to finish the other, the grand test question was, Boys, if it was God's will that you should go to hell, would you be willing to go? And every little liar said, Yes, sir. Then, in order to tell how long we would stay there, he used to say, Suppose once in a billion ages a bird should come from a far distant clime and carry off in its bill one little grain of sand. The time would finally come when the last grain of sand would be carried away. Do you understand? Yes, sir. Boys, by that time it would not be sun-up in hell. Where did the doctrine of hell come from? I will tell you, from that fellow in the dugout. Where did he get it? It was a souvenir from the wild beasts. Yes, I tell you, he got it from the wild beasts, from the glittering eye of the serpent, from the coiling, twisting snakes with their fanged mouths. And it came from the bark, growl, and howl of wild beasts. It was born of a laugh of the hyena and got it from the depraved chatter of malicious apes. And I despise it with every drop of my blood, and defy it. If there is any God in this universe who will damn his children for an expression of honest thought, I wish to go to hell. I would rather go there than go to heaven and keep the company of a God that would thus damn his children. Oh, it is an infamous doctrine to teach that to little children, to put a shadow in the heart of a child, to fill the insane asylums with that miserable, infamous lie. I see now and then a little girl, a dear little darling, with a face like the light, and eyes of joy, a human blossom, and I think, is it possible that little girl will ever grow up to be a Presbyterian? Is it possible, my goodness, that the flower will finally believe in the five points of Calvinism, or in the eternal damnation of man? Is it possible that that little fairy will finally believe that she could be happy in heaven with her baby in hell? Think of it! Think of it! And that is the Christian religion. We cry out against the Indian mother that throws her child into the Ganges to be devoured by the alligator or crocodile, but that is joy in comparison with the Christian mother's hope that she may be in salvation while her brave boy is in hell. I tell you, I want to kick the doctrine about hell. I want to kick it out every time I go by it. I want to get Americans in this country placed so they will be ashamed to preach it. I want to get the congregation so that they won't listen to it. We cannot divide the world off into saints and sinners in that way. There is a little girl, fair as a flower, and she grows up until she is twelve, thirteen, fourteen years old, 
are you going to damn her in the fifteenth sixteenth or seventeenth year when the arrow from cupid's bow touches her heart and she is glorified are you going to damn her now she marries and loves and holds in her arms a beautiful child are you going to damn her now when are you going to damn her because she has listened to some methodist minister and after all that flood of light failed to believe are you going to damn her then i tell you god cannot afford to damn such a woman a woman in the state of indiana forty or fifty years ago who carded the wool and made rolls and spun them and made the cloth and cut out the clothes for the children and nursed them and sat up with them nights and gave them medicine and held them in her arms and wept over them cried for joy and wept for fear and finally raised ten or eleven good men and women with the ruddy glow of health upon their cheeks and she would have died for any one of them any moment of her life and finally she bowed with age and bent with care and labor dies and at the moment the magical touch of death is upon her face she looks as though she never had had a care and her children burying her cover her face with tears do you tell me god can afford to damn that kind of woman one such act of injustice would turn heaven itself into hell if there is any god sitting above him in infinite serenity we have the figure of justice even a god must do justice even a god must worship justice and any form of superstition that destroys justice is infamous just think of teaching that doctrine to little children a little child would go out into the garden and there would be a little tree laden with blossoms and a little fellow would lean against it and there would be a bird on one of the boughs singing and swinging and thinking about four little speckled eggs warmed by the breast of its mate and singing and swinging and the music in happy waves rippling out of the tiny throat and the flowers blossoming the air filled with perfume and the great white clouds floating in the sky and the little boy would lean up against the tree and think about hell and the worm that never dies oh the idea there can be any day too good for a child to be happy in well after we got over the catechism then came the sermon in the afternoon and it was exactly like the one in the forenoon except the other end too then we started for home a solemn march not a soldier discharged his farewell shot and when we got home if we had been really good boys we used to be taken up to the cemetery to cheer us up and it always did cheer me those sunken graves those leaning stones those gloomy epitaphs covered with the moss of years always cheered me when i looked at them i said well this kind of thing can't last always then we came back home and we had books to read which were very eloquent and amusing we had josephus and the history of the waldenses and fox's book of martyrs baxter's saint's rest and jenkin on the atonement i used to read jenkin with a good deal of pleasure and i often thought that the atonement would have to be very broad in its provisions to cover the case of a man that would write such a book for boys 
Then I would look to see how the sun was getting on, and sometimes I thought it had stuck from pure cussedness. Then I would go back and try Jenkins again. Well, but it had to go down, and when the last rim of light sank below the horizon, off would go our hats, and we would give three cheers for liberty once again. I tell you, don't make slaves of your children on Sunday. The idea that there is any God that hates to hear a child laugh. Let your children play games on Sunday. Here is a poor man that hasn't money enough to go to a big church, and he has too much independence to go to a little church that the big church built for charity. He doesn't want to slide into heaven that way. I tell you, don't come to church, but go to the woods and take your family and a lunch with you, and sit down upon the old log, and let the children gather flowers, and hear the leaves whispering poems like memories of long ago. And when the sun is about going down, kissing the summits of far hills, go home with your hearts filled with throbs of joy." There is more recreation and joy in that than going to a dry-goods box with a steeple on top of it, and hearing a man tell you that your chances are about ninety-nine to one for being eternally damned. Let us make this Sunday a day of splendid pleasure, not to excess, but to everything that makes man purer and grander and nobler. I would like to see now something like this instead of so many churches a vast cathedral that would hold twenty or thirty thousands of people and i would like to see an opera produced in it that would make the souls of men have higher and grander and nobler aims i would like to see the walls covered with pictures and the niches rich with statuary I would like to see something put there that you could use in this world now, and I do not believe in sacrificing the present to the future. I do not believe in drinking skimmed milk here with the promise of butter beyond the clouds. Space or time cannot be holy any more than a vacuum can be pious. Not a bit, not a bit, and no day can be so holy but what the laugh of a child will make it holier still. Strike with hand of fire on, weird musician, thy harp, strung with Apollo's golden hair. Fill the vast cathedral aisles with symphonies, sweet and dim, deft toucher of the organ's keys. Blow, bugler, blow, until thy silver notes do touch and kiss the moonlit waves, and charm the lovers wandering mid the vine-clad hills but know your sweetest strains are discords all compared with childhood's happy laugh, the laugh that fills the eyes with light and every heart with joy. O rippling river of laughter, thou art the blessed boundary line between the beasts and men, and every wayward wave of thine doth drown some fretful fiend of care. O oh, laughter, rose-lipped daughter of joy, there are dimples enough in thy cheeks to catch and hold and glorify all the tears of grief. Don't plant your children in long straight rows like posts. Let them have light and air, and let them grow beautiful as palms. When I was a little boy, children went to bed when they were not sleepy, 
and always got up when they were. I would like to see that changed, but they say we are too poor, some of us, to do it. Well, all right. It is as easy to wake a child with a kiss as with a blow, with kindness as with curse. And another thing, let the children eat what they want to. Let them commence at whichever end of the dinner they desire. That is my doctrine. They know what they want much better than you do. Nature is a great deal smarter than you ever were. All the advance that has been made in the science of medicine has been made by the recklessness of patience. I can recollect when they wouldn't give a man water in a fever, not a drop. Now and then some fellow would get so thirsty he would say, well, I'll die anyway, so I'll drink it. And thereupon he would drink a gallon of water, and thereupon he would burst into a generous perspiration and get well. And the next morning, when the doctor would come to see him, they would tell him about the man drinking the water, and he would say, How much? Well, he swallowed two pitchers full. Is he alive? Yes. So they would go into the room, and the doctor would feel his pulse and ask him, Did you drink two pitchers of water? Yes. My God, what a constitution you have got! I tell you there is something splendid in man that will not always mind. Why, if we had done as the kings told us five hundred years ago, we would all have been slaves. If we had done as the priests told us, we would all have been idiots. If we had done as the doctors told us, we would all have been dead. We have been saved by disobedience. We have been saved by that splendid thing called independence and I want to see more of it, day after day, and I want to see children raised so they will have it. That is my doctrine. Give the children a chance. Be perfectly honor-bright with them, and they will be your friends when you are old. Don't try to teach them something they can never learn. Don't insist upon their pursuing some calling they have no sort of faculty for. Don't make that poor girl play ten years on a piano when she has no ear for music, and when she has practiced until she can play Bonaparte Crossing the Alps, and you can't tell after she has played it whether Bonaparte ever got across or not. Men are oaks, women are vines, children are flowers, and if there is any heaven in this world, it is in the family. It is where the wife loves the husband, and the husband loves the wife, and where the dimpled arms of children are about the necks of both. That is heaven, if there is any, and I do not want any better heaven in another world than that. And if in another world I cannot live with the ones I loved here, then I would rather not be there. I would rather resign." Well, my friends, I have some excuses to make for the race to which I belong. In the first place, this world is not very well adapted to raising good men and good women. It is three times better adapted to the cultivation of fish than of people. There is one little narrow belt running zigzag around the world in which men and women of genius can be raised, and that is all. It is with man as it is with vegetation. In the valley you find the oak and elm tossing their branches defiantly to the storm, and as you advance up the mountainside, the hemlock, the pine, the birch, 
the spruce, the fir, and finally you come to little dwarfed trees that look like other trees seen through a telescope reversed, every limb twisted as through pain, getting a scanty subsistence from the miserly crevices of the rocks. You go on and on, until at last the highest crag is freckled with a kind of moss, and vegetation ends. You might as well try to raise oaks and elms where the mosses grow, as to raise great men and women where their surroundings are unfavorable. You must have the proper climate and soil. There never has been a man or woman of genius from the southern hemisphere, because the Lord didn't allow the right climate to fall upon the land. It falls upon the water. There never was much civilization, except where there has been snow, an ordinarily decent winter. You can't have civilization without it. Where man needs no bedclothes but clouds, revolution is the normal condition of such a people. It is the winter that gives us the home. It is the winter that gives us the fireside, and the family relation, and all the beautiful flowers of love that adorn that relation. Civilization, liberty, justice, charity, and intellectual advancement are all flowers that bloom in the drifted snow. You can't have them anywhere else, and that is the reason we of the North are civilized, and that is the reason that civilization has always been with winter. That is the reason that philosophy has been here, and, in spite of all our superstitions, we have advanced beyond some of the other races, because we have had this assistance of nature, that drove us into the family relation, that made us prudent, that made us lay up at one time for another season of the year. So there is one excuse I have for my race. I have got another. I think we came from the lower animals. I am not dead sure of it, but I think so. When I first read about it, I didn't like it. My heart was filled with sympathy for those people who have nothing to be proud of except ancestors. I thought how terrible it will be upon the nobility of the old world. Think of their being forced to trace their ancestry back to the Duke Orangutan or to the Princess Chimpanzee. After thinking it all over, I came to the conclusion that I liked that doctrine. I became convinced in spite of myself. I read about rudimentary bone and muscles. I was told that everybody had rudimentary muscles extending from the ear into the cheek. I asked, what are they? I was told they are the remains of muscles, that they became rudimentary from lack of use. They went into bankruptcy. They are the muscles with which your ancestors used to flap their ears. Well, at first I was greatly astonished, and afterward I was more astonished to find they had become rudimentary. How can you account for John Calvin unless we came up from the lower animals? How could you account for a man that would use the extremes of torture unless you admit that there is in man the elements of a snake, of a vulture, of a hyena, and a jackal? How can you account for the religious creeds of today? How can you account for that infamous doctrine of hell except with an animal origin? How can you account for your conception of a god that would sell women and babes into slavery? Well, I thought that thing over, and I began to like it after a while. 
and I said, It is not so much difference who my father was as who his son is. And I finally said I would rather belong to a race that commenced with the skullless vertebrates in the dim Laurentian seas that wriggled without knowing why they wriggled, swimming without knowing where they were going, that come along up by degrees, through millions of ages, through all that crawls and swims and floats and runs and growls and barks and howls until it struck this fellow in the dugout. And then that fellow in the dugout, getting a little grander, and each one below calling every one above him a heretic, calling every one who had made a little advance an infidel or an atheist, and finally the heads getting a little higher and looming up a little grander and more splendidly, and finally produced Shakespeare who harvested all the field of dramatic thought, and from whose day until now there have been none but gleaners of chaff and straw. Shakespeare was an intellectual ocean whose waves touched all the shores of human thought, within which were all the tides and currents and pulses upon which lay all the lights and shadows, and over which brooded all the calms and swept all the storms and tempests of which the soul is capable. I would rather belong to that race that commenced with that skullless vertebrate that produced Shakespeare, a race that has before it an infinite future, with the angel of progress leaning from the far horizon, beckoning men forward and upward forever. I would rather belong to that race than to have descended from a perfect pair upon which the Lord has lost money every moment from that day to this. Now my crime has been this. I have insisted that the Bible is not the word of God. I have insisted that we should not whip our children. I have insisted that we should treat our wives as loving equals. I have denied that God, if there is any God, ever upheld polygamy and slavery. I have denied that that God ever told his generals to kill innocent babes and tear and rip open women with the sword of war. I have denied that, and for that I have been assailed by the clergy of the United States. They tell me I have misquoted and I owe it to you, and maybe I owe it to myself, to read one or two words to you upon this subject. In order to do that, I shall have to put on my glasses, and that brings me back to where I started, that man has advanced just in proportion as his thought has mingled with his labor. If man's eyes hadn't failed, he would never have made any spectacles. He would never have had the telescope and he would never have been able to read the leaves of heaven. End of Ingersoll's Lecture on Skulls This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Ingersoll's Lecture on Skulls is from the book Lectures of Colonel Robert Green Ingersoll, read for you by Ted DeLorme in Fort Mill, South Carolina, during August 2007.